I'm at shortstop uh, at, of course, the craft service table. <laughs> and because the camera was behind the pitcher, I was at shortstop behind the craft service table. And the craft service table was much like this table here that we're looking at, which is sort of a top and then sort of an open bottom. So I was on one side of it and I'm like not paying attention and rolling and they pitch it to him and fucking Madigan connects, right? Because he's a major league baseball player and he's not taught to miss the ball. Like you can tell him you don't hit it, but he's a fucking rockhead. So he fucking hits the ball. It goes flying to shortstop under the craft service table, hits me right in the balls. <laughs> Put that coffee down. That's a clown question, bro. Do you ever hide in the bathroom and play games or just hide and not be around your kids? Yeah. I mean, isn't that just like a, that's like SOP, right? That's standard operating procedure. I would think the bathroom's the easiest one, plausible deniability. Yeah. Um, but I also, I don't get that much privacy in the bathroom. Like my kids don't, they just roll in. Yeah. But have you ever heard of, there's a company, you have to look into this and I don't know if they've gone public yet or not. It's called Home Depot. And one of the oh, things no. that they sell, yeah, they sell something called locks. Like locks on a bagel. It's locks on doors. And what these things will do is you typically have to turn them or push them. And it and it prevents the handle mechanism on doors from working. And what it does is keep people out of that room. Mm, okay. Yeah. Well, I So I think I have one of these. I didn't know it was called a lock. I appreciate yeah. that. I have one of those. and and I And I use it. Um, but when a five-year-old is, is jiggling the doorknob and yelling and banging and kicking and going, daddy, 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 you in there? Daddy, 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 daddy. At that point, I'd rather just open the door and have you come in and talk to me because okay. that's, that's not fair. enjoyable. That's fair. I've, I've been through that. I know what you're saying now. That Now it makes total sense because yeah. what a five-year-old has, a five-year-old has the resilience, mm. the greatest salesman in the history. He can hear no a million times mm -hmm. and fire back with the same gusto the very next sales call. A five-year-old is just like that. There is not a no or there is not a non-answer that can stop them. A five-year-old also, like, we'll be in the car, and my son will go, Dad, Dad, Daddy, 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 Dad, Daddy, 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 Dad. Well, sometimes I just want to see how long it'll go, but I also, you know, like, if you and I were in the car, right? And you said like, hey, and I didn't say anything. You'd assume, given the two things on the side of my head, that I heard you. And you'd probably go on with your question like, hey, uh, are you hungry? Or, hey, uh, can we pull over up here? But he actually needs the verbal yes. And until that verbal yes comes, it's just dad, daddy, dad, daddy. What's the most? What's the record? Oh, three minutes he doesn't give up he doesn't give up he just wait, wait he'll wait at some point there's got to be a stopping point mm -mm. 
for Mm-mm. three straight minutes. So you lose that game of chicken every time. Oh, I lose. Cause eventually I'm like, and, and I never, because I'm playing the game, it's not like I'm like, what? No, it's just like, oh yeah, what's up? And then he asked the question as if none of that ever happened. It wasn't like, why didn't you say what? It could go on for three minutes and then I'll go, oh uh, yeah, what's up? And he'll go, did you see that car back there? No, I didn't see it. Oh, okay. Where was that it? Was that. Oh, it was about uh, four miles back. It, <laughs> it happened about, about three minutes four ago. Miles ago. Yeah. yeah. It was about three minutes ago. Did you see that woman on the side of the road that was needed um, help? And then you're like, oh, I'm the asshole. I didn't realize that. I was just playing a game. Sorry, son. No, you know my feeling on on people needing help. And yeah, you don't, you don't help them. No, I think it have the virus. Yeah. You have to operate that way now. It's 2020. Yeah, now, yeah hitchhikers are in a bad spot right now. Mm-hmm. Hitchhikers are not getting a lot of uh, Tell me rides. when they were in the good spot. I'm trying to think back to when it was like um, the, the, the golden 70s? era of hitchhikers. Yeah, it's 70s? been a while. It's been mm-hmm. a while. Probably when, uh, what was the name of the serial killer up in San Francisco that picked up all the hitchhikers and murdered them? Hitchhiker killer. That sounds right. It's terribly wrong, but that sounds right. I'll, I think it was the Golden State killer. Probably. You just, it was no big deal. You threw your thumb out, you popped in the back of a, of a car with somebody, and you, uh, you just went west. That's when somebody had cash, grass, or ass. No one rides for free on the bumper oh. sticker. That's not, we don't do that in 2020. And we no. also don't hitchhike. We get into Ubers, which are, that's a very safe mechanism. Lyft or Uber, somebody you've never met, but you ordered them. Now, now it's, you order somebody you've never met and you right. ride with them. Before with Hitchhiker, you just got in the car with somebody you never met and you went wherever they were going. It's it's essentially hitchhiking, but you pay for it. If I was walking down the street and I saw some dude in a Datsun, I wouldn't be like, hey, I'd get in that guy's car. But 10 minutes later when I get home and I call an Uber and that dude shows up in his Datsun, I'm like, yeah, I'll pop in. No big deal. Time to go. What is happening? Why is that okay? Eric, and you go, Tim, Eric, hey, once you make that acknowledgement, when he goes, Eric, here's what you should do. Eric, Eric, Eric. Yes. <laughs> I might drive Uber for a little bit. Yeah. Just to meet why not? people. Just yeah, to meet why not? people. You know? I would love to see the stories that popped up on the air. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's not a bad way to meet meet different characters. Yeah. Do you, let me ask you this. It's weird because do you want to meet people right now? No. Yeah. No. So probably don't. Yeah, so probably don't drive Uber. That's out. that's out. By the way, my Uber rating as a passenger is terrible, and I'm I it? take it very personally. Okay, well, what is yours? What do you consider to be terrible? Mine is like four six, which is terrible. Oh, that's shit. What are you? Well, you're the worst. I'm at yeah. like a four eight seven. Yeah, no, mine's four, really eight, bad. Three. Yeah, and you're I don't terrible. know why. I don't know why. I'm a very lovely passenger. Ooh. Now, Look at this. My number is oh, going up. Oh, you bumped you. up to a 49. Yep. Yeah. 490. Oh. Wow. That's that's pretty good. Um I I would like to be up there. I don't know now. I'm so low how many fives I'd have to get. So I've gotten to a place. So I used to have a great rating. Then all of a sudden, one day I checked my rating, we were in the car, and it was a like a 468 or whatever it was, 47. 
And I was like, this is impossible. How can this be? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm lovely. And my wife goes, well, you're not really that lovely. I was like, what do you mean? She's like, well, you oftentimes, you know, tell Uber drivers how they should get there. And I was like, well, I'm just trying to help them out. Mm-hmm. She was like, but you don't really do it in a way that's helpful. You kind of do it more in a way where like you're telling them what to do. Well, I mean, but I have certain ways that I think that things should be done. So I do that. The other thing I don't like, I don't, don't talk to me really. You know, like, let's get in, let's have pleasantries, but then that's it. If I'm on the phone, can you not have the radio on? How's that? Did you get short? You must have, you must have gotten a little short with an Uber driver and he hit you with like a three. Maybe. So now what do I do now before I take a shit ton of rides? You got to take a shit ton of rides is what you can do. No, no, no. Well, what I also do is I get out of the car and I go, you're going to give me five stars, right? Oh yeah. Yeah. I'll go. Let me see. Let me see. Let me see. And I, and I make him give me five stars while I watch. There and is then no I give him way five stars. that you do that. Yes. That's not a real story. Yes, it is. That is fucking pathetic that you do that. I can't Why? believe Eric Layden forces somebody in, into a five star. I, I need the rating to go up. Do you really make the guy? Let me see yeah. it. Let me see. Give me my five. Okay. Uh, all right. Good. Here. Yeah. Look at me. Yeah, and then I give him. I say, you want five stars, right? And he, oh, yeah, please. B- big rating for me. I said, oh, for sure, man. I'm going to give you five stars. I said, you go ahead and throw me a five right now while I'm in here, and then I'll show you my five. Oh, so you you set him up with, you'd like a five, wouldn't you? Right. Just as almost like yeah. you, cast, you cast your bait. Yep. There's an easy way to get it, sir. Let's Let me see you give me my five. Yep. This bothers my wife to no end. She'll leave the car. She's like, I, I got to tell you, this is this. really, yeah, that's, this is making me uncomfortable on a podcast. Cause really? you know what I did? Yeah. Because here's what I do. I stroll out of there. Like fucking I'm a five all day. I walk out of there with so much confidence. I just say, I'm a hundred percent of five. This was a five ride. No problem. My wife, here's the only reason I'm not a five. And the reason I'm a four nine and I had to work my way up from a four, eight, one. We're in new Orleans at a wedding. My wife is, you know, throwing them back a little bit. We've said before, you got to learn to flatten the curve. Right. You can't take roller coaster rides. You got to smooth it out. Right. And so just just speed bumps. That's all. Speed bumps. You don't want to take the big dip. So she's had too much to drink. She's gone down the roller coaster and she's headed, headed down. So she, to her credit, we're in a casino in New Orleans after the wedding. Everyone like the wedding walked over there, wedding party, and we're all and I'm got a good couple hands of blackjack going. I'm winning some money. Mm-hmm. And she comes to me and she says, I need to get home. Mm-hmm. Perfect. A, I'm about to make money in blackjack. I can't lose money now. I'm gonna cash out early. B, if she tells me that, because she likes to be the last one wherever. If no. she tells me that, I know, oh shit, we gotta get rolling. So we get out of there. And she's got the little, you know, she's doing a special walk where she's, mm-hmm. you know, I'm like, well, that's not going to be a straight line. Mm-mm. And so I get my Uber. I, she gets in and she said, I think I'm going to be sick. And the Mm-mm. Uber driver gets scared. I said, can you pull over? I think she needs to throw up. Opens a door. I push her halfway out and she's throwing <laughs> up out in the street. Right. But nothing in the car. Nothing in the car. Nothing. So I'm like, wow, what a heroic effort by me. I mean, I'm acknowledging how good I am. I helped this Uber driver out. I helped my wife out. 
She's not embarrassed. I don't get hit with that, you know, mythical three hundred dollar cleaning fee or whatever I've been I've heard about. My Uber driver, I got to be broke. Did you see what I just did? That's incredible what I just did. So I'm holding her halfway out the car. He's pulled over. When she's done, you know, he gives her like napkins from a like Starbucks napkins from sure. his from his sure, uh, yeah. the glove box, the glove box. Wipe her off. She doesn't throw up. He reaches. He has some kind of bag. He throws back there. I'm like, we're good. But so we get to the hotel, which is only about three miles away. And I'm thinking, boom, I'm good. Look, look what I pulled off. My wife didn't get sick in this car. Everyone's cool. The next time I check my overrating, I'm like, motherfucker, Nicole, look at this. You got my Uber rating. It's like ruining my credit score is what it felt like. Like, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. what the hell did, did you do? You fault on a loan. I was that pissed off at her and she knows she did it. And she brings it up. She's brought it up to Uber drivers before to this day. She One time thrown up in a car. She goes, no, she didn't throw up in a car, Eric. That's the point of contention. Uh, I should but, have but, never been penalized for vomiting outside of a car. I stopped it all from happening. Was there a part of you? when you saw that he had probably hit you with the two star to bring you down that much that you wish he had just thrown up in his car? No, because the cleaning fee, I know there's the cleaning fees, a real fee. $300 is hardly enough. Doesn't seem like enough. There's no, there's no number big enough. If somebody vomited in my car, I'd have to get rid of the car. There's no number big enough. There's no there's, number big enough. Definitely. Would you would you let somebody vomit in your car for five hundred dollars? No. Seven hundred and fifty dollars. Right now, no. we're in the middle of a pandemic. Nope. A thousand dollars. Somebody no. vomits in your back seat. No. I don't feel like I'm going to have a number that's going to sway this. I mean, I think for. I think for $10,000, I'd let somebody vomit in my car. I would 100% let somebody vomit for less, but I'm also not going for $500. You're going to have to bring – I'm going to play hardball on this negotiation. Yeah. And move. I figure if you're asking to pay me for to vomit in my car, you're willing to go pretty high with the number because it's, a, it's an odd request. It's an odd request, and there you'll never, ever – ever get that smell out there's no amount of cleaning strong enough to get Mm. that smell out of that car ever so that's your that's your problem with it oh yeah that's the smell that smell it's it's a wrap there was somebody on a plane once that looked like they were gonna get sit next to me and i i popped up the plane (laughs) that we'd already had the seatbelt sign on i said no I popped right up. I moved back until the next open seat. The, the flight attendant was like, sir, sit down, sit down, you know, on the speaker. Nope. Mm-mm. Mm-mm. I went like three rows back to find like an empty seat and sat down in it. Because if I saw that, it's over. That's a sometimes, wrap. Sometimes that's what it's got to be, though. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You can't you can't just stand next to somebody who vomited. <laughs> no. no, 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 no. I think we just need to move on to the guest now. Really fired up to talk to Bernstein. Andrew Bernstein is a television director, producer, uh, film as well. Uh, most recently, though, in television, he um, he's the showrunner um, for uh, The Outsider, which is on HBO. It's based on a Stephen King novel. It's excellent. He's directed some of the great shows on television. Um, he started with West Wing, which I'm interested to find out if it was just felt like downhill from there, but... Um, 
The Outsider, Ozark, Studio 60 on the Sunset Strip, Mad Men, um, just a, a phenomenal guy with a great resume, and I had the pleasure of working with him this past year, uh, which is where I got to know him a little bit. And, you know, beyond somebody that I have a, a, a lot of respect for in the industry, um, just really have a lot of respect for outside of the industry as well, and, and really enjoyed talking to him and, and hearing stories about his experiences, uh, and also just shooting the shit about sports. Um, so anyway, without, uh, any more BS, let's get to it. Andrew Bernstein. Yes. How excited are you on a scale of one to 10 to be here? To be here? Yeah. One to 10? 10, for sure. <laughs> now sure. you're lying. For sure. <laughs> but that's mostly because you're close to where I live. We are not six feet apart right now. We are not social distancing. No, but I have my thing for my face. But that would be weird if you had it on. It would be weird. It would be weird. But, you know, you got to be careful. You know? Uh, you do have it's to be careful. It's still going on out there. Is I don't it know if though? you're aware of that. Is it, though? Yeah. I mean, because it, the news cycle has since forgotten about it. Listen, there's no uh, there's no sports on television, basically. So in my mind, it's still going on. When I see like a live sporting event, I actually want to watch other than like fake golf or something. I'm like going to be, I'll, I'll, I'll believe it. Well, then it only makes sense to start the podcast off with a story. And we should tell Lance about our experience uh, at a sporting event together. We've only had one, but I feel like we had a real bonding that night. We, yeah, and it was a great experience, you know, potentially dangerous at times, but, but it was, <laughs> so it was why don't you tell the story? Uh, yeah, we went, you know, we were uh, lucky enough to get some courtside seats for an Orlando Magic game. We were filming down there against the Washington Wizards, and, you know, uh, we were all pretty well behaved, you know, uh, except one person in the group, uh, Mr. Layden here, who, uh, you know, became a vocal fan and would just start screaming at the players. And, you know, at an NBA game on the floor, you're pretty close to them. One time you can sort of. Well, Bradley. Okay. So listen, on this particular night, I am a magic fan. I'm okay, a big but you time understand magic fan. Mostly the people who are open for business like you are gamblers. Like when you have action on a game, you're, you're a Ronin. You can, you can, you, I can do sure. it from, from team to team, from half to half, my fandom can change. Sure. But you didn't have any action on it. It was just, you just were open for business before that game. Like, like L- kids let me, do. Okay. Let me just set the scene real quick. We're okay. at work. We're, we're in between camera setup. So I say, <laughs> talk to the producers and see if they can get you some, some magic tickets. I'm in. So anyway, he, he, Andrew texts me, says, we're, we're good for the Magic game, you know, this night, whatever. Great. It's a Sunday night. I figure this will be an easy night. We'll go. We'll watch the Magic, maybe have a pop, and, uh, and come home. Well, little do I know that we get to the stadium or to the arena, and we are on the floor in the owner's seats, or I think. And there was like 10 of us, right? And, yeah. So we yeah. have four or five and five. So yeah, it's five yeah. and five, five and five behind us. So we're on it. I've never sat on the first like court row of of a basketball game, and you're right there, and you're hearing the guys chatter. And it's a Magic Wizards game. It's not the loudest crowd in the world. And for those who know me, know that my voice carries. I have a theater background. It's just what happens. 
So the game goes along. Obviously, with these tickets comes access to the bar that's under the seats. So it would be rude not to partake in cocktails. No, not only access to the bar to the seats, but access to somebody walking around next to you at your seats offering drinks all night long. All night long. Yes. And I and I was just I felt rude. I felt rude not partaking. So right. I had some pops Understood. and cocktails. Okay. And then all of a sudden we're closing in on about four four minutes left in the game, and the, the the Wizards have had a massive comeback, and it's a tight ball game. And Beal, who has shot like he's shot pretty well uh, all game, he's on the sidelines, he's throwing in an inbound, and I start getting on him about his sneaker game just because there was nothing really else to yell at a guy about. So I was telling him how bad his sneaker game was. Ooh, an NBA and, player, you're getting on him about his sneaker game. Yeah. Why and he didn't talk like about it. His mom. Yeah. Talk about <laughs> his like sneaker game in the NBA. That is the wrong move. Okay, so that got him going. But yes. then what happened was he sh- he hits like three, four shots in a row. It is they might be down by one with about 40 seconds to go. He takes an open three and bricks it. And he, he, it's 10 feet from us, if that. And I just gave him, that's a wrap, Brad. That is a wrap. <laughs> and he just turned to me, squared me in the eyes, and just goes, just be a fan, bro. Just be a fan, bro. And of course, like our whole group was like, oh, Bradley Beal, talk shit to you. But <laughs> it was like the generation. most benign. It was the most benign. All I said was, it's a wrap. I'm a huge exactly. Magic fan. Can you imagine the the New York Knicks, Jeff Van Gundy's New York Knicks from the mid nineties with and with with Mason, Anthony Mason, and Larry Johnson and Ewing and Starks and all those guys? Andrew, can you imagine one of those guys getting so being so offended by someone saying that's a wrap that they have to tr- just be a fan? It wasn't even good <laughs> trash talk. Even, yeah, why is he getting that upset? Rewind to take us back a little bit how you fell into this. Your your dad was a screenwriter, correct? Yeah, is a screenwriter. Is yes. a screenwriter and Oscar winner, Oscar nominated? Uh, he was nominated for an Academy Award in 1976 for a movie called The Front with Woody Allen and, uh, and has written tons of movies and some TV stuff, but mostly movies. And, uh, you know, he's he's advanced in years now so he's not working as much but uh an incredible screenwriter so i kind of grew up on film sets from the day i was born sort of i was hanging out on film sets and then just started messing around on them for you know for money <laughs> later on did you did you at an early age think oh this is fun for money and i'm it's fun it's my dad's work or was there a moment where you said this is really cool like i like this i want to be around this I loved being around it. I loved being on film sets from the earliest memories I have. Um, ne- didn't think right away that this was my profession. You know, I, it was more like, hey, I'm having access to all these amazing experiences and I'm, you know, late teens, early 20s, I'm making some money. You know, it's I'm traveling around. It's kind of fun. Uh, but, you know, maybe there's something else out there. You know, I had been as a parent, as a kid of a writer, and a lot of people understand this, you know, it's an up and down lifestyle, you know, as this industry is, you know, there are highs and lows and, 
you're making money one day and not making money the other day. So it's, you know, my, my parents weren't exactly thrilled that I was going into it because it's, you know, it could be tricky. So, uh, they kind of led me to believe that maybe I should go do something else that was a little more stable, but I always ended up on film sets or in the movie theater or watching stuff. So I kind of knew in the back of my mind, that's what I was going to end up doing. Did you have an idea having been around that? Like, um, I grew up with a father who's, you know, goes to work at five in the morning, comes home at six 30 in the afternoon. And, and, you know, certainly not as unstable as this. Um, having been around it, especially as you got older and you might've seen moments where your dad was stressed or, you know, your parents were stressed financially, whatever, in whatever capacity, were you more equipped to deal with that as an adult than maybe I am? Because I know that for me, that that's been the hardest part of this because I was never around it. I always assumed the other. No, (laughs) I don't think I'm better equipped for it. I mean, than anybody else. I mean, I think it's, I was probably more aware of it, you know, I, I, cause I saw it as a kid, but, uh, and I saw it happen to other people. Um, but no, I mean, I, it was, no, I think the stresses of, of that kind of lifestyle and those kind of moments are, are universal. And so I don't think I had a better handle on it than anybody else. I just, it just sounded a little more familiar to me. And, uh, but I always, what I did know that maybe other people didn't know was that you better fucking like what you're doing and want to do it or else get out. Yeah. I mean, I think I knew, you know, it's that, that great line when, when someone asks an actor, you know, if there's anything else you could do, go do it, you know? Yeah. And, uh, and I think that was what I did know. Cause I saw my dad who I couldn't imagine him as anything other than a writer. And I don't think he could imagine himself. So he was, you know, he was able to sort of withstand those highs mm-hmm. and lows um, because he knew that's where his passion was. And that's, so I, I felt like, as I got into it, if I wasn't sure that that's what I wanted to do and I wasn't passionate about it, then I should get out because I do know what this could do to me. Did you, so it's funny because my dad was, has been a football coach my whole life and, you know, he's retired now, but so I started doing NFL draft work in 2014 and, and, and into the 2015 draft that, that spring. And what happened was he started, I think he always, he knew that I had started, yeah, I've been doing radio you know, since 1997, morning radio. So he knew I was good at doing my radio job. But once I got hired by the NFL to do NFL draft stuff, I think he was um, a little surprised. I don't think he knew how much time I had been putting into it behind the scenes because he was tied up in his own team. And and coaching is a very stressful and all-encompassing thing. And then what happened is a neat thing happened um, that year. He started reading some of my draft reports that came out and on offensive linemen because he was with the Arizona Cardinals and he was like, holy shit, this is, this is pretty good. This is exactly what I see on tape. Well, I'd, I'd learned a lot of my offensive line evaluation, you know, from talking to him over the years. And so he started calling me like, boy, this is really good, Lance. And some of the other coaches are, 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 have come in and told me they think you're doing a good job with this, this, and this. And I could tell there was a sense of pride for him. And then what happened over the next three years that he was still at the Arizona Cardinals before he retired is he would call me almost on a daily basis and we would kick players back and forth, offensive linemen. And we had a real connection there. And I was wondering, as you were talking about your dad and he didn't want you to go into that and, and, and you know, my dad's business is a hard one and, and my brother's in that business. And I think he knows how hard that is. Did you have a connection moment with your dad? Was there a moment where 
he said, wow, I'm, I'm really proud of you inside of this industry. I'm really, or, or did you always just have that, you know, uh, the same type of relationship with your father all the way throughout? No, I think, you know, I think he held on to trying to get me out of the business for a long time. <laughs> um, you know, uh, and, but then I think obviously when it was obvious that I sort of, you know, might have a knack for this and that I could actually, again, as a, as a parent, it's all about, you know, can you sustain a lifestyle and have a family and, and actually survive? Uh, and I think once he realized that I could do that, I think then he was able to sort of evaluate my work and, and sort of, um, and, and, and that was great. You know, he has insanely high standards. Um, and so, um, you know, it's, you know, we had conversations about stuff and we still do. And I know how proud he is of me about what, what, what I'm doing, but that's kind of relatively recent in terms of knowing that. I mean, it's not something that I've been doing this a long time and I think it, Mm -hmm. you know, it's, it's only been in the last, you know, probably 10 years that I feel like he's like accepted the fact that I'm doing this, you know, and, and, and I'm, and I'm pretty good at it. Um, but it's, uh, you know, it's, it's been, you know, it's tough. I mean, I think he, um, you know, he has high standards and, 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 uh, and I have high standards, which I've learned from him and, uh, you know, that can lead to some, you know, interesting conversations. Yeah. Do you ever, do you guys ever work together in, in the sense that not, not like you direct or produce something that he's written, but send him something or he sends you something? You know, we don't do that honestly that much. And, and that's, uh, probably my fault. You know, I just sort of, um, you know, I, I, I'll give you a quick story. You know, I, I was writing, this is a long, fairly long time ago. And I would send him stuff that I had written. And uh, although I'm predominantly a director and a producer, I'd written a bunch of stuff and I would send it to him. And he would send it back to me with tons of notes and, and you know, pretty critical stuff. And, and, and I was always like, well, okay. I mean, I guess I could do that, but you're suggesting, but like I'm watching this shit on television and this is just as bad as that or as good as that. And he'd be like, okay, yeah, well, if you want it to be as bad as that, sure, then go for it. <laughs> and I'd be like, okay. Well, you know, and, and, and he would never let me sort of drop down to the level of what I was trying to emulate on television because he was always shooting for something much higher. So after a while, it got exhausting because I'm like, okay, well, you know, I'm just not that good yet <laughs> at what you're saying, but he wouldn't let me off the hook. And which is why I stopped writing as much and, and, and concentrate on directing, but it's a, um, but no, it's, it's sort of, you know, we share a love of the medium and, and of what it is. And, uh, you know, uh, that's enough for me. You know, it's like watching sports with your dad. I mean, right. it's sort of like watching movies with him and watching TV shows and, and spending time with him doing this. I didn't need, um, necessarily advice or, you know, whatever, you know, commenting on a lot of stuff. I just wanted to enjoy hanging out with him doing the stuff. Right. Yeah. It's interesting. I mean, my dad having been just in a completely different business, uh, there's just not that relationship in terms of the entertainment industry, you know, but I still think that no matter how old you are, you know, if you have had that relationship with your father, there's always that you want that, you know, you want, you you want that adulation, you, you, you know, any, no matter how old you are, I think when you hear your father say good job or whatever, it, it goes a long way, you know, I I think it does, you know, but I do think, you know, 
if I would say I've gained anything from him, you know, aside from sort of reading what he's written and liking that kind of stuff, it's sort of just trying to aspire to do great work. You know, I think he's always, you know, he's held himself to a high standard. He's written stuff that's meaningful and he has sort of, you know, he's associated himself with very talented people and he's, and to me, that was what I kind of gained from him was was sort of an aspiration to be the best I can be and to not allow myself to settle for anything less than. And I think that's, and, and, and that shows itself on film sets where you sort of probably push a little too hard to make something great. And, Mm -hmm. you know, I mean, it's, it's that kind of family curse where you're sort of like, you better fucking be good at this. Right. You know, and, and that's frustrating and hard at times, but I sort of, it kind of hopefully leads you someplace good. But it's so interesting because, and, and Lance, I know you want to follow up, but that's really interesting because like, I, I feel like they're, this industry is so easy based on the life we lead with this up and down and this roller coaster of income to, I don't know, for lack of a better term, sell out. Mm-hmm. And so, and we all want that career. We all, well, I shouldn't say we all, but, but I know that you and I share that. And, and once you're on the path of it and you, and it started to fall into place, which oftentimes at the beginning of your career is coincidental, you know, you get certain jobs and they happen to be good jobs and cable jobs. Then all of a sudden you kind of started to make that niche for yourself. Um, but at the same time, there becomes those times where you just have to work, right? You got, you have two daughters and you know, school, college, everything else. It's like, it's, there's a lot to it. Um, and then that pressure you put on yourself to try to, the balance, like, do I take this job? What does it do in terms of like my marketability or what it means for the, my career? Um, h- how have you been able to juggle that? Um, like, do you find, do you have, I know some actors have like certain things. They say it has to check two of these three boxes or what, or do you just, is it totally circumstantial? You know, it's a good question. I, I, you know, it, it, it has to be something that's interesting to me. It has to exercise a muscle that maybe I haven't exercised before in terms of directing a genre, whether it's, you know, I just did a sci-fi show or whether it's a big action show, you know, something I might not have done. You hope the quality is good and the people you're working with is good, but it's, no, I, I think the biggest thing is exactly what you just said. It's sort of like, you know, which I think we all mostly deal with, which is like, how do we sustain a career and support our family and, and our lifestyle and and keep going and not do shit, you know? And, and I right. think uh, that's been the the balance that we all do. And, and there are certainly things I've done that I'm, I'm proud of everything I've done, but there's certainly things that I like better than other things and, and things I would do again as opposed to other things. But um, no, I think it's, it's all time. And I think the more successful you get and the more opportunity you have, sometimes, you know, you're offered for a lot of money, shit, stuff that's not very good. <laughs> so you know, more difficult to get. <laughs> yeah. And it's like, you know, it, it just because you, you know, you, you might have more success doesn't mean it's actually better stuff. And, um, and so I think you have to keep the quality up. That's always a fight. You know, it's always, it's a conversation I've had with my agent since I started directing, which was, you know, I started working on the West wing, which was a great show and, uh, and a show that sort of spawned amazing actors and amazing directors, and amazing writers and producers. And I was lucky enough to be a part of that, uh, as my education. And I was like, Oh, I don't want to, 
this is, I don't want to leave this. Like I want to find places that are like this with these kinds of people. And that's kind of been my touchstone ever since, which is sort of like, where are the smart people? Where's the great writing? Where are people mm. who come to work every day and, and, and just want to elevate the material. And, um, and that's where you want to be. That's, and that's sort of the scariest place to be. And it's sort of the, you know, you want actors to challenge you and to question you and to sort of make sure you bring the goods to work every day. And, 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 uh, and if you don't have that, then, you know, you're wasting your time. I want to get to th- some of the specifics. I want to start getting to some specific things that you've done, uh, because I'm actually very interested in a lot of the background of your work. And I want, I want to start kind of in the middle, not even the middle, toward the back end. Mm-hmm. I don't want to go all the way to the front or early stages. I want to go to the Americans because uh, now the first thing I have to ask both of you is how accurate is IMDb? Well, I think there's a picture of somebody else other than me on my IMDb page. So okay. I, I, I think I think Strike the material one. on there might be eighty percent correct. The picture's wrong. That's all. And had you as yeah. director and screenwriter, for example, of the Americans. I was certainly not the screenwriter of the I Americans. Think so. if, it says, if it says that, um, I've also, I believe, yeah, I, I, there's a NBA photographer named Andrew Bernstein who is a big NBA photographer and he shoots for the Lakers. And often I've ended up on a page of his, but uh, yeah. So accurate, maybe not so much. Eric, it's yours? Like a, I, you know, like, well, at, at IMDb, when I started my career was a really small operation. I think, I think it was like 10 dudes in a room. And so you could wow. submit things and, and, and it just kind of like happened. So early in my career when I was struggling to get work, but I also wanted to play a lot younger and I looked a lot younger. I put my age as four years younger than I really was. So when I went and met agents and managers, I could say I was 17, but I was 21. And that was on there for, oh, probably till probably four or five years ago. My age was four (laughs) years different. You didn't have to prove, you didn't have to prove anything, nothing. 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 Yeah. So I I wanted to ask you about this. So I was a big fan of the Americans, um, huge fan of the cast, huge fan of, of of really just everything, the feel. And I guess this gets to directing. I mean, to be able to capture and some of this gets to um, is going to get to makeup artists is going to get to, uh, you know, in terms of uh, the clothing, the the all of the the atmosphere of the eighties that was completely captured in that time, because that's a, that's a time during my, you know, when I was younger and I, it's a very distinct time period, the eighties, but it's also distinct from the standpoint of the fear of the Russians and the, the, the cold war that was going on. And, and I thought it was really an amazing show because you were able as a, as a group of, 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 of directors, producers, writers to really, I, I thought completely capture a storyline of a husband, wife, a relationship, but then, you know, their love of their country, you saw Russia in a different way, certainly on the Americans. And we grew up seeing it and maybe not Russia, but these two particular operatives. Um, but at the same time, there was so much going on here and it, and it mirrored what happened at least in the eighties, you were able to capture that time period. Can you, can you speak a little bit about the casting and, and trying to capture that portion of, of history? Yeah. I mean, listen, I mean, when I came onto that show, you know, it, it had certainly been cast and, and, and set up. So I, I can't take credit for any of that, but, um, 
but you know, like a lot of good shows like that, you know, a lot of attention to detail is paid. And, and so, um, there was a lot of people paying attention to the clothes and the makeup and the hair and the wardrobe and, and the set design, the set decoration. Um, you know, the, the funny part about that show that I, that I remember correctly and is that, you know, first of all, the cast, as you say, are amazing. I mean, the two leads, um, on that show are amazing people and amazing actors. And you wouldn't want to be around any better folk than, than the two of them. They made the set an amazing place to be, but there was always a conversation between the writers and the show people who ran the show about making sure the spy craft was accurate because that was a big thing for them to make sure the spy stuff was correct. And the actors were always talking about the relationship of the family. And, 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 so it was always sort of like they felt that was the most important thing mm-hmm. and other people felt the spy craft was the most important thing. And I think the fact that you had two competing forces fighting for both those things, which the show was a product of both of them, right. made the show what it was because it was sort of it existed as an amazing family drama and it also existed as an amazing spy show uh, and showed us a side of something that we didn't really know. So I don't know if that answers your question, but sort of as a yeah. director – you know, on a show like that, you, you basically come in and hope you don't fuck it up. You know I mean? I think it's, you know, you, you sort of have something really good there and your eye and your attention to detail is what makes it good and makes it, you know, uh, continue to be good. And, um, but they had, I mean, that show had so many great people involved in front and behind the camera that, you know, we as directors would just, you know, we would just come in and hope to, again, not mess it up and also to sort of, you know, elevate it in some way that, that sort of made it a little bit more unique. Okay. Eric, well, I was going to say, Eric knows that this is, this is a question that I have. And Eric says, okay, go ahead and ask it because there is an easy answer, but I still can't, I still can't figure out what the answer would be. So when you have a show with multiple episodes, multiple seasons, why are there a variety, even in a single season why to the lay person I'm every time I see a show I'm like, why the fuck is there another director and another director? And like, there's not a, con- a continuity of directors in a single season. And I always get worried. Well, are they going to screw up the vision or is, is it not going to have the same level of continuity from episode to episode? Why does that happen, Andrew, where there are different directors, multiple directors in some cases in single seasons? You know, it's it's a great question, and and it's and it's kind of evolving a little bit as we speak. You know, I think you, especially in cable shows, um, I think you're seeing uh, less directors and more of directors doing multiple episodes um, for that very reason. That I think there is a danger of you know, listen, if somebody comes in and you and you give them even an episode or two episodes and they mess it up, that's two out of ten. That's a that's a lot of your season, and so uh, it is a, always a risk. But but the flip side of that, which is why we do it, is that you know, especially on a show that's been on for a while, it can get stale. The actors can get lazy, the producers can get lazy, the writers can get lazy. They they rest on their laurels. They and you want a director to come in who's going to mix it up and who's going to sort of push people and ask questions that haven't been asked and give. You know, hopefully each director has their own specific perspective on a, on a scene. And listen, I've been on shows and, you know, the right stuff is one of them. And as, as most shows are when, when new directors come in and 
sometimes cast don't like that and they get familiar with the director who did the first episode or the second episode. And, but you hope that the, the new director comes in and is going to give them something new to play with and have a different perspective and make an episode different than what it might've been had that previous director worked on it. So to your question, it's sort of, hopefully it gives the season a new life. It gives the episodes, makes them a little different. Hopefully each director brings their own unique perspective to it. And then of course there are times when a director will come in and screw it up and you'll get a bad episode. And that is just the price of doing business. I also, I mean, and you know better than I, but part of it in this world of TV is just strictly pre-production. Um, you know, for Lance or people that don't understand, I mean, while, while we're shooting a television show of 10 episodes, while we're shooting episode six, if Andrew's directing episode seven, he's he's already scouting locations for that next episode. He's casting guest actors for that next episode. He's maybe meeting with actors on their off time for that next episode. He's creating a shot list for that episode. So he's doing a ton of pre-production work, having production meetings with wardrobe and makeup on that next episode. All of that is happening for all day leading up to when he starts. There's no way he would be able to do that pre-production work for that episode if he was shooting the previous episode. So, you know, it, uh, some of it has to just do with strictly keeping the machine rolling. It, it, I mean, yeah, yeah. I mean, right? listen, I, th- I think one of the things that you see now is, you know, you see someone, you know, you know, as an example, Escape from Danamora. You know, I think Ben directed, I think Ben Stiller directed all of them. Right. You know, so, you know, it does happen and and you just put more pre-production into it. So a director can shoot it like a movie and you just go in and do it all. Um, But listen, there've been so many times where I've been a producer on a show and I've looked at how a director was prepping something and thought, oh, that's interesting. I wouldn't have done it that way. And then the episode is great. And and it's not the way I would do it, but it's totally different, but it's amazing and brings a unique perspective to the show. And I'm thrilled that that person did it. So, and I'm thrilled I didn't do it because I would have sort of not done as good a job. So I think you always, you know, have to weigh the good and the bad when it comes to that kind of stuff. Sure. Now you're, um, you, you start your career, you're West Wing. Yes. You know, I mean, in terms of television, I know you, you, at this point you've done stuff, but like this is Sorkin. This is big boy television. Um, Scary. Yeah. You're not an EP on it. You're not a producer on it. You're just coming in as a director. I know. I was an AD on that show. So you were an AD. So you knew the show. I knew the show and the people very well. Okay. So, I mean, was, yeah. Tell us about that. Is that scary? I mean, you've got. Yeah. I mean, I, I, yeah. I mean, it's sort of, it's terrifying. I mean, one of the great things about that show and the scary things, and I'll never forget it, uh, Tommy Schlamme, who's the executive producer of that show and, and start, started it with Aaron, who's sort of my mentor in this business and who's an incredible producer and director. Um, you know, I remember when I sort of got the call to direct, he said, don't expect these people to take it easy on you. You know, I had known them for years as an AD. I, you know, spent time with them. I went to dinner with them. I sort of had drinks with them. I, I knew them well. And they, uh, but he said, don't, they're not going to give you a pass because you're new or you're, this is your first job directing anything. And they didn't. And and it was terrifying, but it was like, you know, it's like being thrown into the major leagues and having somebody go, all right, go, go swing at that fastball. Like, good luck. 
you know, yeah, Syndergaard and first up. It's go. exactly right. And like, you know, go, go, go try to hit that. And, um, and it was terrifying. And it was, you know, my first scene I did on the West Wing was with Martin Sheen, Allison Janney, and Lily Tomlin. <laughs> and it was like, and that was the first day in the first scene. And I'm like, this is like, you know, you got to be kidding me. You know? So when you walk to Martin Sheen, do, do you have a note? I mean, if you have one, how do you present it? The, uh, badly is, is how it happened. But I mean, I, um, you know, there are two great stories that I'll, I'll briefly tell from my directing time at the West Wing. And, and there are millions of them. But I think in that first episode, it might've even been that first scene, um, Allison was doing, you know, brilliant work as she does every time she steps on the set. Um, but I, as a new director felt like I had to say something like I, like I couldn't just stand there and not do something. Like, right. And I'm like, I had watched directors do stuff and I'm thought, okay, being a director means you give actors notes. Like right. that's part of your job. So I'm like, I got to say something like I'm going to look like an idiot. So I went up to Allison and I actually thought she was sort of overdoing it a little bit in one scene. And I think I went up to her and said, you know, uh, if you could like me, you know, not overact so much or so, uh, some, some, <laughs> some horrible, some like horrible phrase that I, I mentioned. And, and, and we finished and Allison was like, you know, sort of, you know, brushed me off and, and we finished the scene and I was sitting there in the Oval Office kind of looking at my script as we were waiting for the next scene to start. And, and this post-it comes on my notebook on my script and this hand comes down and puts it down and, and I look up and I see Allison walking away and I look at the post-it and it said, never tell Allison she's overacting. <laughs> and, and I kept that literally on my script notebook for about 10 years that's because it was like you know and then and that was like the first day and then another great experience in that episode was john spencer who's since oh, passed who was sort of so this good. incredible curmudgeonly beautiful actor and 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 taught me so much but we were doing a scene with him and uh we were in his office uh on the set and it was a scene just with no dialogue where he's sort of watching a video on TV and he puts a VHS tape in the thing and sits back and watches it. In the middle of the scene, um, a light, like a practical light starts, the bulb starts to flicker and the light starts to flicker and the DP was next to me, the cameraman, and he starts elbowing me and going, you got to say cut, the fucking light's <laughs> not working. And I'm like, yeah. And he's like, he's like, say like, say cut. And I'm like, oh, and I'm like kind of freaking out. And I go cut. And, and Spencer comes flying out of the room and like red faced and starts screaming at me in front of the crew and saying, you know, don't you ever fucking do that again. And I had no idea what he was talking about. And he's screaming and he goes, and he goes, he goes, don't ever fucking do that again. And I'm like, well, the light is, he goes, and he just started yelling at me. So we finished the scene and I'm like sweating and scared and John can be scary. And, um, and we finished the scene and he takes me aside and he pulls me off to the side and he says, he goes, let me just tell you something. He goes, we as actors live for those moments. And he goes, I was going to get up and I was going to fix the fucking light bulb and I was going to sit back down and never, ever fucking uh. call cut when that sort of stuff happens. And, and I go, okay, again, life lesson, lesson I've kept with me since that day. And he made me feel horrible but he taught me a lesson and 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 that episode was was filled with moments like that from these incredible actors who 
one wouldn't give me a pass at all, thank God. But not only wouldn't give me a pass, but also made sure that like they were going to kick my ass and like and make sure that when I did this again, um, that I didn't make those same mistakes, you know. And and they were, it was a tough bunch. They were they were perfectionists, all of them. And uh, and you and what was great about that set was they brought their A game and they sort of what I took from that was sort of you know. And I, and I remember saying this, you know, I, I might have even said it to you and I've said it to a lot of casts I've worked with that you guys set the tone for the show. Like you stepped on the set of the West Wing, you better know your lines, you better hit your marks, you better know what the fuck you're doing, and you better be good. And if you're not, we're going to we're going to make you look bad. You, you were know? you were a production assistant for it at as you would have been young, uh, Glenn Gary Glenn Ross er, early I on. What I was, right? yes. So here's Jack Lemon to to your point just now about the West Wing. You got Jack Lemon, who's not a big, boisterous, loud guy necessarily, but tremendously he was a tremendously talented actor. Al Pacino, Ed Harris. There's some intensity in there. There's some really. Did you take anything away? For, were you just kind of along for the ride, like you talked about earlier? Uh, since you weren't really sure, maybe at that particular stage, what you were going to do, or did you take something away from these? big, powerful actors. Uh, Baldwin obviously had a very, a much shorter, but very memorable scene. And of course, Kevin Spacey was, was and, Al, and Alan Arkin. I mean, and the cast Arkin, was, yeah. I mean, the cast was ridiculous. Yeah. I mean, it was, you know what I, what I took away from that was, um, you know, don't piss Ed Harris off, you know, which yeah. was sort of, which, which, uh, did you? I, I, no, I didn't because I was okay. just terrified of him. You could add that to the post it note. On the, uh, your, on yeah. Your don't piss Ed Harris <laughs> off. Don't piss yeah. Ed Harris off. Uh, to don't me, talk that. Shit to Bradley Beal. Yeah. Don't talk. To me, that movie for me, again, I was a young kid, you know, I was in my 20s. And, um, that to me was like an acting class. That was like going into an acting class. It was every day was just sitting back and watching some of the great actors do their thing. And, and it, you know, it, it wasn't, there, there are other movies I worked on as a AD and a PA where I felt like I could ask questions and sort of pick people's brains about their process. That wasn't one of them. You know, I, you, you weren't going to go to Al Pacino and go, Hey, how'd you do that? I mean, I, maybe you could, I wasn't certainly going to do that, but you just sat back and watched how these people did it. You know, how they liked their environments, how they like to be talked to. I always tried to kind of get my ear next to J.B. Foley, who was directing, and hear what he was saying mm. to an actor, what what note he was giving. Or, you know, I just tried to absorb as much as I could from all those early experiences so that I, you know, if I ever was lucky enough to be in a position to direct, that I knew what to say, you know. And, uh, and that's kind of what I took from that. Yeah. And it was just, you know, being around those people was insane. Yeah, I mean, I can't. That's a that's one of those that you just want to sit there and watch every day. I mean, as an actor, I would sit there and want to watch that every single day. So that's amazing. Um, and I and I love that story about Spencer. And, and it is so true. It's those few moments of those mistake moments, you know, that you that you do live for because you're alive. Um, and by the way, and not every actor. Like there are actors who would go, "Hey, the light's not working. Like uh, we got to cut. Like right. hey, the light's not working." And that's there are a lot of actors like that who just aren't in the moment enough to sort of play with it. And that's, you know, that happens all the time too. And, and that's kind of where the DP was coming from. He was like, dude, like it's not working, like turn, you know, we got to cut. And 
great actors and people who play in the moment, you know, live for that kind of shit. And, and that's what you hope you're, you're around. Yeah. I mean, I always find, and, and partly probably because of a theater background, the, that's one of the hardest things going from theater to television is a, you have the ability to cut and B you're doing it so many times that you it, it finds its way to stale oftentimes. Right. So it's finding those moments that make it different, that can keep you alive, that can keep you engaged. Um, well, that's, I mean, quickly to your point, the other thing John Spencer would do all the time, as would most of the actors on the West wing is he would come to you at, you know, you're doing a bunch of takes or something and he would come to you as the director and go, are you happy? Or do you have what you need? And you would say, yes. And he go, great, let me do another one. Yeah. You know, it's that other one that would always lead to, you know, and there was no, you know, there was no, you know, you were okay to fail. You were okay to try something right. stupid. You were okay to stand on your head. Um, but you never knew what you were going to get. And and that was one of the things. And it's amazing to me how many times now I go to actors and I go, you want another one? Well, that And they go, I'm good. Oh, And you he- go- Really? Like Okay, because see that was going to take me to working with you just recently because I remember on just about every scene you would say to me, you would come up and you'd say, "I got what I want. Here's one for you. Like knock it out. Go." And which is like such a blessing as an actor because now I know you got whatever you need and I can just like let her rip and forget and, and, well, and, and let go. And, and, and I remember a scene specifically that we shot in, in right stuff. Uh, and it was a scene that we actually had to like work hard on because there was some language stuff and there was some, it was in mission control and it was, it was Patrick and Jake and, and Patrick and myself and Jackson yeah. comes in. And, um, and I remember there was a moment in that scene where Jackson started like getting flustered and I just started like hammering lines at him on his coverage. And we found this like really neat, you know, moment between us that we hadn't been able to find in so many takes, you know, master or coverage. And, and those are the, I, like, I just, those are the moments you live for, you know, at least from my point well, of view. Well, that's, like, I mean, that's why we do it hopefully. I right. Mean, that's sort of what we do. And that, and that Westwood cast again, as, as sort of the, the birth of my, directing career and how I like to do things was they were all theater trained actors. They all were used to rehearsing and experimenting and trying different things. And, and, and there were tons of times where we would, an actor would say, let me do another one. And they would do something. You'd be like, Oh, that's amazing. That leads to that. So now we got to look over here. I mean, you know, it was sometimes financially irresponsible, but it led to great television. And I think one of the things we lose sight of certainly in, in making television now is that, it you know it, it we move quickly we have a lot to do in a day um, it becomes sort of factory led at times and we lose sight of why we're there and why we're there is 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 an artistic creation and it only works if everybody feels free to sort of do what they do and to contribute to the scene and not just sort of stand there and say their lines and walk away and and I think that happens way too often and I think yeah. it's about financial pressure and it's about people getting lazy. And I think it's about sort of, you know, uh, shows that have cultures that sort of don't allow you to sort of play around a little bit. Right. I always think of disrupt and provoke, right? You want to be provocative in a positive sense. And so you keep talking about actors who take these chances or I've got, it reminds me of best ball term. You know, when you play the four man scramble of best ball and once one guy gets one right down the fairway, you're like, 
All right, we got one. We're good. So I'm going to let this shit rip now. And then you swing so hard you hurt your back. But as far as, because <laughs> that's a real thing that happened with me. However, um, do you do that as a director? Because I, I hear you talking about actors, but when do you get to the point where you say, you know what, I want to get creative with this? I Do you ever have those moments where a light goes off and you say, I'm going to go completely off script here and I'm going to take you, I'm going to take this scene in this direction because we have one in the can and I want to see what this looks like. Yeah, I, I, I hope I do. I mean, I sort of, you know, the way I sort of approach things is I have a very concrete plan of how I want to do it. And then I throw it away, you know, as soon as I get there and, and have it in the back of my mind. But, you know, it's, listen, I think we always say that, you know, the script is one thing. Once you put it on its feet and you're in there with actors, it becomes its own other thing. So it, it could be taken in a direction you're not even aware of. And I think part of being able to be a decent director is being able to sort of move with those changes. I mean, you know, if I'm on set and 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 this gentleman right here sort of says, yeah, yeah I, I hear what you're saying, but that's not how I see the scene. I see it this way. And I see my character, who I, by the way, know better than you, would never say that or would never do that. And now your plan is out the window. And now you have to sort of formulate with everybody else a new way to do it. And and that's the fun. And that's what's scary about it, because you're kind of out on a tightrope. And um, so that's where your plan might get thrown out the window and you might have to take it in another direction. And usually, if it's a a creative collaboration, you're taking it in the right direction. You know, it's my thing is always sort of like, you know, I'm I'm a I'm hopefully leading the ship in a direction, but you know, I got people with me as a director uh, or producer in, in any capacity. What was the show where you felt like the cast, the crew, um, the the executive producer, whatever the setup was that made you feel like you had the best chemistry and the most freedom and, and you just felt like you got in just such a great rhythm with that entire group. Wow. I mean, that's a, that's a good question. I mean, um, I don't know. I'm trying to think back on all the stuff I've done. <laughs> the, uh, you, don't ha- you don't have to say right stuff. Eric doesn't care. Yeah, no, no, I, I know. We, I was, uh, trust me. I wasn't going to say we, that. The, uh, we know. <laughs> that he knows that <laughs> that wasn't going to be on my list. The, um, it's, it's, it, 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 uh, um, I don't know. You know, it's, it's, it's a good question. I mean, it was sort of, um, You know, I, I, I don't know. It's I don't know the answer to that question. I mean, every show I've done has had its share of surprises and frustrations and uh, turmoil and uh, and successes and uh, crews that were great. And, uh, you know, so it's 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 a tough one to say that was the like the the perfect combination uh, of people. Um so you go, you're, if you're on a West Wing as a director and Mad Men as a director, and by the way, two shows with Aaron Sorkin and Matt Weiner, like guys who are, they're not, I would think, giving you a ton of rope. I know they're not giving a lot of actors rope. Aaron, so, very different than Matt. Okay, very different. Yeah. Okay. Um, Aaron, by the way, and we can get into our favorite shows of all time, but my top three favorite shows of all time is Sports Night, which Amazing. Had, it, had, Incredible. It, had it come on last year would run for 15 years. It just yeah. was so far ahead of its time. Um, but n- when you're coming in as a director, that's one thing. When you're an EP on a show, you have a lot more say. You, you're in the, the process so much earlier. 
Um, you know, like I get, I guess it's a two parter one. How much rope do you have when you come onto a show? Does it depend on the showrunner? If you're not an EP and then where is that change when you become an EP? And when I say EP, I mean, executive producer. Yeah. I mean, um, it, it, you know, it's all personality driven, you know I mean? It's, right. it's, they're, they're, they're writers, uh, creators who, uh, give you a lot of freedom and there are others who want you to say every word the way it's written and, and have a very specific idea of what every scene should be. That's not usually the way I like to be sure. And, and, and not the places I want to be. Um, and certainly as a guest director, you are, um, you know, you're beholden to what they've set up before as you should be. Um, certainly as an EP, which, which, you know, when you come on much earlier, you certainly have much more say. I mean, I won't do a show, uh, usually, uh, with a writer who I don't have a, a decent relationship with, who I can have a real back and forth with, you know, um, and have a creative dialogue about what the show is. Um, cause then otherwise it's just not fun, you know, for right. me. Um, so, and then you have a lot more say in, in, you know, you can like, you know, the outsider, this HBO series I just finished, um, you know, as an EP on it, you know, I felt a lot more freedom to sort of take big swings and, and sort of stylistically change things up and, you know, Jason Bateman had set up an amazing uh, first two episodes, but I felt that I had the leeway to sort of do what I wanted. And and usually you don't have that. Okay. So in The Outsider, episode three. Yes. You know the shot I'm going to go to? I do. Okay. Yes. <laughs> it, it blew me away because it's so different than any shot I've seen on television, right? And And so for those who have watched it, I'll tell you what it is. For those who haven't watched it, you need to go watch it. But in episode three, which is Andrew's first episode, Bateman directs the first two. Jason Bateman directs the first two. There is a scene that takes place in an office building. And of course, like any other scene that takes place in an office building, you see the outside of the office building and the people inside of it, and you immediately think it's going to cut to the inside to shoot coverage. This scene sits for three, maybe three plus minutes outside the office building with a three minute push in as slow as can possibly be. And every, it never goes inside. It never, if I'm right, maybe it goes, no, it, it never goes, it inside. never goes inside. No. Okay. How the fuck did you pull that off? Did you pitch it? Did you not pitch it? Did you shoot coverage and then end up using that? Or did you know from the beginning, this is what it was? Like that to me, like I'm going to geek out on you, but like I love that. Well, that shot is a great example in 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 itself to explain a lot of stories about network about shooting television or anything for that matter. Um, I had the idea that um, for the shot, I didn't have to pitch it to anybody. Uh, I was a producer on the show. I was going to do it no matter what anybody said. Right, um, <laughs> and uh, so um, I wanted to start with it. You know, uh, before we went in for coverage, there was planned coverage inside the room. I wasn't that daring at the moment. And um, so we did that shot on the outside and we, and we did it. And as we started to do it, when we got into like take four, five, six, seven, we did a lot of them. I started to watch it and go, I don't think I need any coverage for this. Scene. I mean, Mendelssohn's got his back against yeah. the wall. And, and, and I started to go. I'm going to take a big swing here. And, and, and the camera operator, uh, this amazing camera operator we had, uh, Ben Semenoff, you know, and, and we kind of looked at each other. We're like, I don't think we need coverage here. 
And I'm like, oh, you know, as a, as a, as a producer who's going to be in the editing room going, really? Like, you're really going to just do this? And we just, and then finally, like on take eight, I'm like, I'm not doing any coverage. Now, the good part about that was I was way behind schedule on that day. And if I had <laughs> gone into the room to do coverage, I would have been massively behind. So it helped me out time-wise. But, the, and the great part, you know, as a director, when I knew the shot was working and I knew that it was going to be a big swing, but it was going to work. When we finished the scene, and I hadn't told the actors this either. Oh, wow. And I, uh, and we finished. I'm like, we got it. And they're like, moving inside. And I'm like, no, we're not. We're done. And literally everybody was like, what? And the cast freaked out, mostly because they got to go home early. But, of course. But, but they were like, you know, everyone gets excited about that stuff. Yes. Like, that's the fun, right? That you can, and we're always looking for that moment where we can do something like that, that's different and unique and sort of tells the story without sacrifice. Um, and everyone got really excited about it and the shot worked out really well and people talk about it, but it certainly was, the intention was to do coverage. The intention was to sort it a little bit, to shoot it a little bit more traditionally. But once we started doing that first shot, I kind of knew relatively quickly that it was going to work and that this was something special. And I also knew as we ended up doing that, we were going to intercut it towards the end a little bit with the introduction of Holly's character. Right which we flashed to a little bit on her face. And, and so I knew it was going to work that way as well. So, um, but it's, you know, it's one of those, again, happy accidents. It's that moment where you sort of set something up and you go, oh, wow, this actually works better than I thought it was going to. It was to. fucking awesome. Yeah. I mean, I loved watching it, but I also think Jason, um, and I've, and I've told Lance this before, Lance, and I've talked about, you know, Lance has said, How, what, why do you like this? Like, what about this director? Whatever. That, that do you enjoy about it? And I, Jason on the show does things in a way where he'll sit in oneers for way longer than you normally would. And then he won't shoot coverage or he'll sit in a oneer for a really long time at an angle that you think it, it feels voyeuristic. You feel like you're watching something that you're not supposed to be watching. Like you're in the woods with binoculars or you're like in a booth somewhere and you're like eavesdropping. And I love, like, I love that. And that show has the tone. Like that show does that in a lot of different spots. And I just think it's really, you know, it, it, there's a scene with, with Mark uh, Menchaca where he's in the woods and it's shot from really from up high. And you, again, you just feel like you're like in a tree stand watching him, you know? And yeah, I mean, listen, I think, you know, Jason set that up in the beginning and, and, and allowed us to sort of do some really interesting stuff. And, and I think, again, it's, it's the style of the show, right? I mean, some stuff works for some shows right. and some stuff right. that some of those shots in other shows would be like, what? Like that right. doesn't make any sense. So, sure. you know, you got to sort of honor the style of the show, but you know, Jason and I had a lot of conversations early on about what the style of the show was and, and what we wanted to do. And, and that became sort of, you know, that shot I did pushing in the window, which was in episode three, I used as an example for other directors as we move down the season of like what you can do. Like right. it's okay to do that. If it works and tells the story, go for it. You know, look, I, I understand that Jason Bateman's character on, um, I, I started with Jason Bateman on a show long ago when I was young called it's your move. And he was a young actor and, um, that's the first time I became aware of Jason Bateman. And it was, it was a fun little show where he was a shithead and he used to always scrap against his sister. It's almost like, okay, they're one upping each other. And then, um, you know, and then uh, it was back on my radar again with arrested development. 
and he was a dad in Arrested Development. I always feel like Jason Bateman would win the dad draft. A.J. Hinch, I know you can appreciate this, um, certainly, Eric. I feel like A.J. Hinch would be up, way up there. He feels like he'd be the most incredible dad. But For Jason sure. Bateman, the way he delivers lines, like the first episode of Outsider where he's ha- he has a scene in the kitchen and he's talking to his kids. Now, I will say, other than the facial hair, it feels the same way when he's in Ozark talking to his his wife and kids <laughs> there. His voice is the same, his mannerisms. He's got this calm stoicism to him that that is, I don't know, it's it's somehow comforting. But he is he is really, really talented, obviously, because of his vision for these shows. I wanted you to talk about him for just a second and his vision on on uh, Ozark and, and and The Outsider. And then I want you to specifically address the filter of Ozark and the blue type of filter that the, the, the entire ep- the entire show is shot with because that gives it, it, it definitely gives it a completely different feel. And I was wondering where that came from. Yeah. I mean, listen, I think, I think the, the you know, taking the second one first, I mean, the look of Ozark is something that I assume Jason, um, you know, developed with, with the cinematographer and, uh, that, that did that show and, and they sort of tried out, I assume different things and came up with the look of the show. That was before my time. Um, mm-hmm. you know, I think he had a, you know, listen, I think Jason is attracted to, you know, that kind of material and that kind of look and, and a darkness to his shows. Um, you know, certainly for the outsider, we talked a lot about the shining and, and sort of certain Stephen King stuff like that. Um, but he's, you know, Jason's a brilliant filmmaker. He's, he's, a uh, uh, as talented an actor he is, he's that much more talented as a director, um, and uh, and a very clear idea of sort of what he wants to do. I mean, he loves to explore the darkness. I mean, he, right. he did it, does it in Ozark, and he does it on our show, um, and did it on on our show, and uh, and likes to explore it from a, a very specific way. I mean, it's you know him and I were very much on the same page in terms of what we wanted to see. You know, more of a psychological terror than sort of a jump out of the closet terror. And I think, um, you know, that informs sort of how the show looks and how it feels and, and, uh, you know, the colors that it, that it has, you know, again, I was not part of the decision-making process on, on right. those shows in terms of how it looked, but, um, you know, they look, they seem like they're right for, uh, for what story they're telling. It, it really does. He used to phrase, he was talking about the outsider and he used to phrase I'd never heard. And I wanted you either you or Eric to, to tell me what this means. Editorial pacing. What does that mean? Editor as a director, editorial pacing. Do you even know? Is that just director speak? Uh, no, I, no, listen, I mean, pacing is, is part of your job all the time. You know, how the show is going to be paced, you know, I mean, for instance, the outsider is, is a relatively slow paced show. So, you know, your, your pacing is ultimately, uh, determined in the editing room. So hence the phrase editorial pacing, okay. um, you know, how the, how your show is going to be paced. Cause all the pieces, the puzzle pieces are put together in the editing room. So uh, you know, that's where the, the pace is set, but the pace is also set on set, you know, how the actors perform their lines and how the camera moves. Um, you know, all those things are part of the pace of a show, you know, do actors, you know, West wing had a very fast pace, you know, we talked fast. We moved fast. The steady cam was always moving. Um, it was an editorially fast-paced show. The Outsider sort of sat back and let you breathe, and sort of sat back as an audience and let you observe what was going on. 
So editorial pacing, I think, is just a fancy word for, you know, how the editor puts the show together. I mean, and, and you know, with the West Wing, when you did sit in those moments with, say, John Spencer in a VCR, boy, did it warrant that, right? Do, you earn that because you've been moving so fast through that episode that you sit there and it like you earn that moment and it's it it just weights that much heavier. Yeah, I mean, that's I mean, that's part of pacing is not just fast pacing. It's right. pacing can be slow pacing. It can be fast pacing. You know, you hope that you mix it up so that it's interesting for the audience to watch. I mean, I think some of the, you know, problems with some stuff on TV now is sort of pacing wise, it all feels the same. You know, you feel like everything's the same. And and I think, you know, you want to take audiences on roller coaster rides, uh, you know, emotionally and, and sort of how the camera moves as well. What do you think about the new I mean, you've been around for long enough. What is this new landscape? You know, I mean, you with with so many different places, you know, that are that are putting things out there. You'd think like, wow, okay, like we've got all this all this real estate now to put content, but it sure is going to water it down. But the competition to sell the content is that much higher. Yeah, um, I mean, I I don't you know I don't get too involved with that. I mean, I, I sort of. Um, you know, there's good stuff. And I think there's just, you know, more bad stuff, right. more places for bad stuff and and hopefully more places for good stuff. And, and more, you know, my concern is always that everybody's going to kind of be chasing each other so that it kind of all feels the same in the end, you know, mm-hmm. and that places that used to take risks and, and, and really do things that no one else was doing are going to mm-hmm. go away because it, it's tough to take risks when the competition is so fierce. Um, but you know, it's, uh, to me, it's also intimidating. I just, there's just too much stuff. You know, I just don't know where to, I get overwhelmed, you know, but I feel like there's a place for everyone. I feel like you and I have had this conversation when we were in Florida, which is, you know, one of the things that I always admired about HBO was one of those places, right? Like that it, that it took those shots, that it knew who it was and it would go out on a limb and take that risk, whether or not they're kind of making their way down to the crowd with HBO max. I get, you know, I don't know. We'll see. I don't have HBO max, but, but you know, it feels like now with all these different platforms, there can be a place for everyone, you know, like I might not watch TLC, but there's a lot of people that do watch TLC and that's a great place for people who want to watch that content to go versus HBO or, you know, and that's excluding Amazon, Netflix, who just want to have the bar- largest library, you know, that are saying like, we'll take everything. But I feel like if people stuck to what they knew they did, we, you know, they, they would succeed because they would take that market share as opposed to trying to get everybody. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, listen, if there are more places to, to, that are buying content, it's better for all of us, you know, right. it's better. There are more jobs and there's more opportunity and there's more, uh, you know, places to work, whether that translates to better television, right? I think is still yet to be seen. You right. know, I think the more people doing it doesn't make it better. It just makes it more. <laughs> Top three shows. Oh, fuck. I don't know. I mean, Top, I, just give me some favorites. The, uh, you know, I just, uh, boy, this is going to be a bad one for me. You know, uh, succession. I love, oh, uh, there's, there's, uh, succession. Huge um, fan of Succession. I think yeah, it's I mean, you know, I started out as a doubter, and then it, I think it's a great show. Um, there's this Israeli show called False Flag, which I just started watching, which is really good. Okay. Uh, 
which is on Hulu, uh, which I found amazing. Um, you know, it's funny. I don't, I mean, during this pandemic, I've watched, started to watch a lot more TV. I don't watch a lot because I, I'm just not, I'm working all the time and I just don't, I don't, I don't want to watch something all the time that sort of makes me question what I do and mm-hmm. how I do it. I'd rather watch a sports event, which now I can't do either. Um, <laughs> unless it's like a 1986, you know, Lakers game. Um, Mets Astros. Mets, Astro- Mets Astros. The, uh, but it's, uh, you know, I've started watching a lot more movies now. But in terms of top three, I don't know, Succession, this false flag show. I don't know what the third one would yeah. be. Something. What about you? I don't I, – What are, my top th- – I mean, my all times are uh, sports night for sure. Um, well, if you're going all time, that's a different conversation. Yeah, yeah. yeah, uh, yeah. I mean, right now what I love, I really enjoyed Fleabag. Yes, Fleabag. I thought great. it was just so good. Um, the first season of Killing Eve, I think, is incredible. The first season yeah. of Killing Eve was incredible. The incredible. second season of Fleabag, even better than the first, yeah. but both seasons, fantastic. West Wing's one of my all times. Uh, I'm a sort. I mean, yeah, I, was, I mean, that's I a great, like that's such a great are, repeat customer show. It, it yeah. still holds up and it's so good. Yeah, absolutely. You could go back and watch West Wing right now and it fully, especially holds in up. today's political climate, it's a good show to. Yeah. I think Mad hope. Men was probably one of the most important shows on television. I think it changed the landscape of cable television. I it, like to me that was the beginning of a network like AMC being able to do what they did. Yeah, um, I mean it's interesting. I one of the reasons I really miss sports is on TV is that it just you know I just want something that's going to take me out of what I do for a living. Yeah. You know, I mean, the, the ability to sort of sit back and – I mean, I can watch an NBA basketball game from beginning to end yeah. easily, you know, and, and be fine with it. And and there's not a lot of stuff that I can do that with. And and so that sort of, you know, the need for that in our psyche and, and in my sort of mental, you know, state – uh, is hugely important, you know, and, and I think it's sort of, we take it for granted at times, but it's sort of the need for that, those pastimes and that sort of to get away from our own head. You know, when I watch TV, again, I, I watch it with a critical eye. Sometimes I'm looking for things that other people might not be looking for uh, to my detriment. And when I watch basketball, I know I'm never going to dunk like LeBron so right. I can just fucking watch it and be cool with See, it. That's why, and I'm the exact opposite. I get out of sports. So I go binge watch shows. I, I'm the exact opposite of you, but in the same yeah. plane, it's just, you know, different. And and that's what I think makes our, our podcast pretty good is that we have similar ideology it's just coming from different landscapes so for me when i'm done with my radio show and i've got to go do eight hours of nfl draft work which is and i know i'm going to have to do this for the next four months and i'm gonna have to be working seven days a week 70 hours a week between radio and that when i'm done with my radio show i'm going to go get on my computer and turn on netflix and get my 10 a.m lunch basically and this is my time and and i've told eric we, we talked about this before when it's my television time, this is my time to check out. I don't want kids there. I don't, I really don't want anyone there. I want to be able to eat and watch a show and zone out on either something I really love or a food show, or maybe it's going to be that new show that I'm starting to binge on. I, I, I'm desperate to sort of, for those moments of watching sports where I can sort of get out of my own head and, uh, and watch something that I know I, I will never participate in. But I can enjoy. If you I, could, me, I, 
what would you participate in basketball? I'd be a shortstop for the Mets. Oh, I grew up playing baseball. I, you know, I played two years in college and, and, and I was sort of, you know, I wanted to be, you know, I wanted to be the shortstop for the Mets. That was sort of, that was it. Could you, was could nothing. you turn two? like, were you smooth around the bag? Did you go? I was, I, I was, I was a badass shortstop. I'm not going to lie. I, I could play that position. And, and I, and I, I played as far as I could till a, a shoulder gave out, but, but that, you know, growing up, that was sort of, that was it, man. There was, there, you know, Freddie Patek, if you remember, played yeah, was a Royal. five foot four shortstop for the California Angels, and wow. uh, and and he might have played for some other teams, but he was. I'm like, fuck it, a like I can do it, I can do like, it, I can do it. <laughs> like this, this guy's in the major leagues, he can play shortstop, and I thought there's a chance, and uh, and then I played some college ball, and I realized there's no chance. But the uh, it was a, uh, you know, that was sort of that was my dream. That was it. Yeah. It's sort of, I, I worked on a baseball movie called Little Big League, which yeah. was in 1992 yeah. and uh, with Tim Busfield and, uh, and uh, all these major league baseball players. And I'll never forget, I got the job and I was a, a AD on it. And we shot in uh, Minnesota. We shot in the Metrodome for like five months, four months. And uh, we had all these major league baseball players on the show uh, in the movie. And it was directed by this guy, Andy Scheinman, who was a, who was a, partner at Castle Rock and was a huge baseball fan and like just wanted to hang out with major league baseball players <laughs> That's what I did. And, and sort of wrote this movie with his brother and they were big baseball fans and he directed it. We were shooting this scene and um, Ken Griffey Jr. was in the movie and he was out in center field. And the scene was like one of the actors was pitching to one of the major league players and the fucking actor couldn't get the ball over the plate and it just take after take and Griffey's out in in center field. And I'm out there with my walkie talkie out there, you know, patrolling center field with him. And he turns to me and he's like, he's like, dude, I got to get to Atlantic city. And and I'm like, and I'm like, well, we're in the middle of a take. He's like, I got a plane waiting. I'm going to Atlantic city. Like you can't leave. And he's like, I'm leaving. And like, you know, and it was like every day I was like, Oh, they're just, you know, it was just not what you expected, you know? And, um, and they just were like, toying with the actors on that movie i stood at home plate with randy johnson on the mound oh and you know six ten, and and you're standing at home plate and you're like oh no like never like i couldn't touch not i mean not even close well i'm warming up for february because uh we on our first podcast lance mccullers jr was on and uh next february right when he's geared up for spring training uh, I'm gonna stand in the box, and he's gonna throw. He's gonna throw at me. Really? See if I can connect. He's gonna throw right at your head. I, <laughs> I'm sure I'm gonna hit the deck. <clears throat> what's, so now what's gonna What's gonna he's happen? He's got a 96 with- mile an hour fastball, and he's got a curveball that will buckle your knees. I mean, an amazing curveball. So, I mean, I, I can't wait. I'll be live streaming this. Um, it's going to be the best thing I think ever. I think I'm going to get a hit. Yeah, I know. I know. I made sure to mention that to my radio partner, uh, John Granada said. And what did Granada say? He, he, he was, he was in your corner. I think he really thinks, (laughs) I think he really believes. I mean, if I hold the bat out. Well, hold it out and see what happens. That ball's going to be coming right at your head. You're going to be in the dugout by the time it crosses the plate. (laughs) We're filming a scene and there was a baseball player named Dave Madigan who used to play for Seattle. And I think he might have played for the Mets as well, and a third baseman. And Madigan was was in the scene, was batting, and he was supposed to strike out. That was the scene. Randy Johnson was pitching to him, or one of our actors was pitching to him. He was supposed to strike out. 
And I'm at shortstop uh, at, of course, the craft service table. <laughs> and because the camera was behind the pitcher, I was at shortstop behind the craft service table. And the craft service table was much like this table here that we're looking at, which is sort of a top and then sort of an open bottom. So I was on one side of it and I'm like not paying attention and rolling and they pitch it to him and fucking Madigan connects, right? Because he's a major league baseball player and he's not taught to miss the ball. Like you can tell him you don't hit it, but he's a fucking rockhead. So he fucking hits the ball. It goes (laughs) flying to shortstop under the craft service table, hits me right in the balls. Like, like nails me like fucking true story hits me. I go down like right away. And we have about 5,000 extras in the stands for the day. And everyone, it's like a pin drops. You hear everyone go, right? Fucking I go down, medic comes out to me and they fucking take me to the hospital. And I'm like on the ground and, and the guy and Madigan doesn't fucking say a word, like doesn't come see if I'm okay, doesn't give a shit, right? So I get taken off the field. They take me to the hospital. I uh, I go to the hospital. I get checked out, get an x-ray, whatever. I'm fine. I come back like three or four hours later and I get, you know, come out of the tunnel, you know, back, you know, like Willis Reed, you know, I'm like, sort of, and I come back onto the field and the fucking fans are rut, like fucking cheering and the sound mixer comes up to me and hands me a cup and uh, that he had gotten from the equipment guy. And he goes, Andrew, and they sort of, and that was, and they had written like, you know, you know, something like, you know, good luck or something like that. And so that was sort of my memento from the show. And fucking to this day, Dave Madigan had never apologized for nailing me with a line drive. And I'll never forget. Cause I had, again, part of the great part of the story. I, I'll never forget. I had a pair in my hand and the pairs on that show were always rock hard. I had found a pair that was ripe. And I had it in my hand. I get, hit, I get hit in the balls. I go to the ground. I drop the pair on the, on the turf. And I just uh, see it kind of rolling away from me as I'm like, and that, and that was it. I never got amazing my pair. The things, amazing the things you can remember when you're oh, smacked in the balls. It was, and it was by like a major league line drive. Yeah. Like it was like, and they were like, "Oh, you might have internal bleeding." Like it was, they were some serious. Shit. That's and that's why you got a, a testicular implant. And that's that's, exactly. that's, that's right. And it's like you know, then you go to the hospital and you're like, "This is so embarrassing." You know, if you if there was a scene, if this scene was in a movie and you were pitching it and you said, "I'm going to throw something in here where he fa- the, the the actor falls down and the pear falls out of his hand and rolls." Oh, you know, just as symbolic, the pear, the oblong shape of the pear is rolling as he got hit in the balls. They would be like, that's two on the nose. That would never what, happen. What, no, I don't. Hold on. Was- can, I, can I pitch you how it's shot? Yeah. Yes. <laughs> okay. Here's how I envision it. Here's how I shoot it. You obviously have a, a scene, and I don't know the terminology, but you obviously are going to get, you're going to go tight on the face and the ball, you're going to see the ball hit him. You're going to go tight shot to the face. And then as he grows, and then as he goes down, what I'm going to do is, is take a shot that's pulled away. That's ground. That's, that's ground level. Okay. That's going to be, uh, imagine it on the grass in the shortstop area from where you are. And so I want to see, I want to get really tight on that pair rolling slowly. And I may even slow it down. I may go to about three quarter speed so I can really slow the roll and rotation 
of the pair and I want to and I want to pull into it as it comes to a stop and then I want to go past the pair and focus on the eyes your eyes of death pain and desperation I want to capture both of those as you're sitting there thinking my balls hurt and I've lost a fucking perfect pair a disaster and I want to capture that feeling from your eyes I, th- I think I think you're right on with it, with how that would be shot, and it was uh you know it, w- it was certainly a painful moment, and I think part of that would be the setup on on just my desperation to get a good pair, like in the <laughs> in the weeks leading up to it. I and, felt um, it, but it, it sort of it was, but that was sort of that moment encapsulated like the entire experience with the Major League Baseball players, like you know. I'll never, you know, Paul O'Neill, who played for the Yankees for a long time. Yeah. We were shooting at Comiskey Park in, in Chicago. And it was, you know, the movie took place in the summer, but we were shooting there like in November. So it was fucking freezing. And O'Neill's like up to bat, and our, our actor pitcher fucking nails him with a fastball, like right in the <laughs> arm. And fucking O'Neill drops the bat and is like, I'm done and just left. And it was like, he was an active baseball player. And he's like, I'm not risking my career to fucking get nailed by some actor fuck, you know? <laughs> and, and it was freezing. So you're like, it's like 30 degrees. You know what And it was like, and it like nails you with a fat, he was like, I'm done. <laughs> it was like, and that, but the whole movie was like that. It was like every, you know, it was like all the, every t- day was like something like that. And uh, again, just to show you sort of like your dream of sort of being around major league baseball players just gets destroyed when it, sort of becomes a, a movie set. <laughs> <laughs> that's so good. Yeah. Oh, that's so good. Man, thank you so much. My pleasure. This was so much fun. Okay. That was awesome. You digging that music? Yep. Josh Cook at herelieswoe.com on Instagram, on the World Wide Web, however you want to find him. That artwork you see on Instagram and Twitter, it's pretty sweet. It's done by Tony Moles at the Anthem Agency. A-N-T-H-M agency.com. No E in the M in the Anthem, just Anthem without the E. A-N-T-H-M agency.com or at Anthem Agency on Instagram. And if you like spirits, I mean, if you're into that kind of thing, delicious bourbon, delicious rye, some vodka, maybe gin, Huh? Maybe you're a martini guy. Blackland Distillery, straight out of Fort Worth. BlacklandDistilleryFW.com or on Instagram at BlacklandDistilleryFW. See you next week.